Hello there, I'm Michael Jackson. Check in anytime from anywhere for the latest of our commentaries or to check back to an earlier sound journal. It's all here. Pakistan is an erstwhile ally of ours, a young, independent nation, 60-year history. 30 of those years have produced a succession of uniform dictators. Their current military dictator, General Pervez Musharraf, purports to be our friend and ally, and in repayment he gets some $2 billion annually in aid. The general is a man of real arrogance and dictatorial power. In March this year, he arbitrarily suspended Pakistan's independent-minded chief justice. The suspension coincided with the courts preparing to hear challenges to the general's plotting to keep himself in power as both president and commander-in-chief. Our uncritical support for the man has reinforced his hubris and insularity. Ever since September 11, 2001, the United States has been reimbursing Pakistan's military for fighting Taliban and al-Qaeda forces along the Afghan border. But overall, it would appear the more unpopular Pakistan's military dictator becomes at home and the less willing he is to fight the Taliban, the more the Bush administration grabs onto him. It would appear, and understandably so, that the White House is fearful that the next ruler could be worse and might follow that a nuclear-armed Pakistan could be a major concern. It's approaching a year now since General Musharraf cut back on the efforts to fight the Taliban and the al-Qaeda forces, yet we continue to pay him. He's not the kind of friend this country needs. We need to be on the side of democracy in that country, and we should even help facilitate a democratic election which might well include the two exiled leaders, Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif, both of whom are forced to live in exile. Closer to home, the escalating drug war that's gripping Mexico and becoming ever more ferocious. Mexico's president, Felipe Calderon, has sent an armed force of over 30,000 troops and police across the country to tackle drug-related violence. He's been in office less than half a year, and the situation has become much worse, with local drug cartels waging a mini-war for smuggling routes into the United States. Already the situation is being compared to the brutality and murder of the past ten years in Colombia. This year alone, more than a thousand have been killed in drug-related violence. In a recent excellent and graphic report in the Christian Science Monitor, written by staff writer Sarah Miller-Lana, she talks about the growing violence, saying some politicians have called for troops to be deployed within Mexico City. And she adds, watching Mexico's newscasts these days is like tuning into the latest installment of a grisly TV crime series. Some 200 Mexico City police have been killed in the past 16 months. The story gets more and more gory and graphic, and the president is being praised for his efforts. One can but hope that he'll be able to survive. I mean, this is no little league. This is also, aside from Iraq, the deadliest country in the world for journalists. Here's the headline to a story in Time magazine that I'll willingly share. It reads, Sharing the Wealth. It claims that if today's billionaires were to pool their resources, they could end poverty and pandemic disease. That may be a utopian recommendation, but there are examples of phenomenal wealth being spread around to the poor. Rockefeller did it when they were as rich as, as rich as Rockefeller. The Gateses are doing it, Bill and Melinda. But if every billionaire chipped in, just think it would transform the world. Nice notion. The top five on the Forbes list of the world's wealthiest people are William Gates III, Bill to his cronies, age 51, 
Net worth, 56 billion. In place number two, from Mexico, the 67-year-old Carlos Slim Halo, who is just behind Gates, worth estimated at 53.1 billion. I've heard tell that he's likely to be the top of the list in the not-too-distant future. Then comes the second U.S. citizen in the top five, Warren Buffett. He's 76, a very giving man with a net worth of 52.4 billion. Then comes Swedish citizen Ingvar Kamprad, who's made it to 81 years of age and a net worth of 33 billion, and the industrialist of India, Lakshmi Mittal, with 32 billion. According to Forbes magazine, there are over 950 billionaires in the world. Times' Jeffrey Sachs concludes the idea with the admonition of the first mega-philanthropist Andrew Carnegie, who wrote in 1889 that the day is not far distant when the man who dies, leaving behind him millions of available wealth, which was free for him to administer during his life, will pass away unwept, unhonored, and unsung. As a sidebar, I wonder if any society in the history of the world has been as generally philanthropic as giving as the citizens of the United States. A face, apparently less part of the glitz and glamour of the recently completed 60th anniversary of the Cannes Film Festival, is the always controversial filmmaker Michael Moore. Something of a surprise, as his next documentary is scheduled to open on June 29th, and he really appreciates the worth of advertising and promotion, whether good or bad. The film is titled Sicko, and it's all about health care. This time, he isn't thrusting microphones in front of unwitting congressmen as he did with the exceptionally acerbic box office record-breaking film Fahrenheit 9-11. This time, he's not taken the relatively easy path of attacking his target. For this picture, Moore has spent several years studying health care. It appears to have made an impact on him, and as he says on his website, one way to fight the system is to take better care of oneself. And with that in mind, he's lost 25 pounds. His um, initial subject was General Motors, with his mildly successful Roger and Me. Then came the parry and thrust at the gun industry with his film Bowling for Columbine, and then he targeted the Bush administration with Fahrenheit 9-11. Each film has been successively more critically acclaimed and criticized, and each has seen an increase in their box office revenue. With the latest topic, it isn't necessary for the filmmaker to convince the American public there is something wrong with the healthcare system. He's confronting the audience here at home with a question. Who are we, and what's happened to our soul? Now, this is quite a task. He believes that we've settled unnecessarily for ruinously expensive and substandard medical treatment, particularly when compared with countries that have universal health care. Sicko, the movie, has many villains, and they include politicians who manage to pocket millions of dollars from pharmaceutical companies and HMOs while they denounce universal care as something ruinously akin to a communist plot. Remember them? Just a thought. The United States recently ranked 37th on the World Health Association list in patient care, which puts us just two slots ahead of Cuba. What about the many who can afford insurance but have limited insurability because of pre-existing conditions? There are so many issues to deal with pertaining to health care, and maybe Senator Hillary Clinton is ready and more able to get involved once again with the nation's health care issue. I hope so. 
Remember how conservatives and health insurers vilified her efforts to bring about a universal health care system when she was the first lady of the land? She hit the nail squarely when addressing remarks to the students of George Washington University. Our present system is outdated, ineffective, and unsustainable. She added, We know we can spend far less and create an efficient, high-quality health care system for all Americans. Amen to that. Does this sound a little odd? Nowadays, it takes fully 25 minutes longer to fly from New York to Los Angeles than it did 10 years ago. It has nothing to do with global warming or increased headwinds. It's a fact that aircraft are faster. We certainly have improved navigation, but nonetheless, airlines keep adding minutes to the scheduled length of flights. Reasons? Actually, several, including increasing congestion at airports and also in the sky. Higher fuel prices are compelling airlines to slow their cruising speeds to save money, and there's even a lack of up-to-the-minute equipment for air traffic controllers. What's under consideration in Washington in the way of immigration reform is, to put it fairly, flawed, but as imperfect as it is, it certainly is better than the alternatives. The bill makes an important philosophical break with the previous approaches. It encourages the immigration of highly skilled foreigners, and it discourages the migration of huge extended families that cannot promote the economy of the 21st century. It is also complicated and very likely unworkable. The temporary worker program offers no path to citizenship, and its convoluted restrictions are likely to push even more immigrants into the shadows. Have you ever known anything as permanent as a temporary worker? We are going to see an even greater pool of illegal immigrants. The current bill is still the best that could be hoped for under the current political circumstances. Here's a fact that further points to the changes being brought about in nature as a result of global warming. Just last week, figures were released for the 2006 English wine harvest. <laughs> it's large, 3.37 million bottles, which constitutes their third biggest crop ever. But don't laugh, Jackson. Many of them are excellent and getting better by the harvest. The country, which until recently hardly reckoned with the best sellers, has in one generation flourished. No longer a joke, this is a somewhat sensitive barometer of climate change. Australia, with its abundant wine-growing country, is suffering mightily with its drought of several years. In the meanwhile, growth and improvement is showing up in Britain, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, all cool countries. I never thought I'd see a business section headline in a major newspaper, such as the Financial Times, that says, How warm weather is making English wine a hot commodity. Of them all at this stage, may I put in a supportive word for their champagne-type sparkling wines. They use the self-same grapes as champagne producers, Pinot Noir, Meunier, and Chardonnay. Enjoy. Doctors are telling us that being thin does not automatically mean that you are not fat. Makes sense to you? Being thin does not mean that you are not fat. Let me explain. According to recent data, based on studies at Imperial College in London, people who maintain their weight through dieting rather than exercise are likely to have major deposits of internal fat, even if they appear thin. Not fair, but fact. And it surely means that the whole concept of being fat needs to be redefined. And of course, if you have 
love handles or other outward signs of being fat. I mean, you could be outwardly thin. An individual can have surprising levels of fat deposits inside, which means heart disease or diabetes. Living, it would seem, is hazardous to your health. And to prove me wrong, keep on exercising. All the sessions we've recorded over the past couple of months are up on the web, willing to be shared and hoping for your company anytime from anywhere. I'm Michael Jackson.